Sacred Heart In ninth grade, I was a great admirer of Jesus Christ. He was everywhere at Sacred Heart, perched over doorways and in corners, peering from calendars and felt wall hangings. I liked his woeful eyebrows and the way his thin, delicate legs crossed at the ankles. The stained glass windows in our chapel looked like piles of wet candy to me, and from the organ came sounds that seemed to rise from another world, a world of ecstasy and violence. I longed to go there, wherever it was, and when they told us to pray for our families, I secretly prayed for the chance. We had a new girl in class that year whose name was Amanda. She had short red hair and wore thin synthetic knee socks tinted different colors from the wash. She wore silver bracelets embedded with chunks of turquoise and would cross her legs and stare into space in a way that suggested she lived a dark and troubled life. We were the same, I thought, though Amanda didn't know it. During Mass, I once saw her scrape something onto a pew with the sharp end of a pin she was wearing. Later, when the chapel was empty, I sneaked back to see what it was and found her single first initial, A. To leave one's mark on a church pew seemed a wondrous and terrible thing, and I found myself watching Amanda more often after that. I tried talking to her once, but she twirled her pen against her cheek and fixed her gaze somewhere to my left. Close up, her eyes looked cracked and oddly lifeless, like mosaics I'd seen pictures of in our religion class. Though we were only girls at Sacred Heart, there were boys to contend with. They came from St. Pete's, our companion school three blocks away, and skulked relentlessly at the entrances and exits of our building. Unlike Christ, who was gentle and sad, these boys were prone to fits of hysterical laughter without cause. I was unnerved by stories I had heard of them tampering with the holy wafers and taking swigs of the sacred wines Father Damien kept in his cabinet. They reminded me of those big dogs that leap from nowhere and bark convulsively, stranding children near fences. I kept my distance from these boys, and when the girls began to vie for their attention, I avoided them too. Late in the fall of that ninth grade year, I saw Amanda cutting her arm in the girls' room. I pretended not to notice, but when I left the stall and began washing my hands, she was still there, her wrist laid out on the wood box that covered the radiator. She was jamming a bobby pin into the skin of her forearm, bunching it up. What are you doing? I asked. Amanda glanced at me without expression, and I moved a step closer. She was working her arm in the fierce, quiet way you might work a splinter from your foot. It's not sharp enough, she said impatiently, indicating the bobby pin. It was straightened into a line, and the plastic nubs at its ends were gone. Amanda seemed unembarrassed by my presence, as though cutting her arm were no weirder than braiding her hair with ribbons. This intrigued me and her urgency drew me in. I was wearing a pin, a white goat my mother's husband, Julius, had bought me on a trip to Switzerland. I wore it to please my mother, for though a nicer man than Julius was hard to imagine, I just couldn't like him. It was as if my not liking him had been decided beforehand by someone else, and I were following orders. Now, as I touched this present from him, I wanted Amanda to use it, I craved it like you crave a certain taste. It was wrong and bad and exactly right. I felt a pleasant twisting in my stomach, and my hands shook as I unhooked the pin from my dress. 
Here, I said, holding it up. Try this.